0: Only
1: redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Amy Winter is upon us. <laughs> it's back. Seasons are funny like that. They're cyclical. Yeah. It's Here not they winter come again. And now it's yep. winter again. This interview is with Catherine May. She is the author of Wintering: The Art of Rest and Retreat During Difficult Times. And This book, I still think of, it's just one of those books that just stays with you like almost nothing else I've ever read.
0: After this interview... I went and bought 10 copies of the book Wintering and I gave them out as my holiday gifts last year because I just thought this is the book that you need to read in the wintertime. And there is something about Catherine May beyond the fact that she's smart and has lots to say. She has a very pleasing voice. Oh, yes. Very pleasing. Very plummy. Whenever I'm feeling extremely stressed, I like to put this episode on. It's just like it's balm for my soul. Yeah, She's British, she's calming, and she just has a lovely view. I find that I repeat all the time an idea that she talks about, which I had truly never considered before listening to this interview for the first time, which is that we think that life points towards summer. We think that all of the year is waiting for summer to come, but that everywhere in the natural world, life points towards winter, ah. that, that everyone spends, everyone, animals, yeah, uh, people who live in remote places, that people, they do their canning, they get ready, animals, like we're just looking around. <laughs> we had a really fat raccoon the other night on the deck and I said, that's a winter raccoon. He's been Getting ready, because there's going to be sparse times ahead. And I find myself saying that to people and thinking about this episode all the time, that life points to winter and the idea of preparing and being ready for this very specific season. I've always been a winter person. You're not a winter no, person. No, You hate the winter. Mm-hmm. But I, I find the idea of preparing for a season of slowness and maybe a little bit of hardship. And obviously the way that most of us live now, we're not really tucking in for the winter in the same way, but it's just lovely as a concept.
1: And it's a metaphor because we might not all, you know, hunker down until the, uh, the mountain pass opens in April. It's not that kind of hunkering down, but we all have seasons in our lives that can be wonderful things or can be really hard things that are kind Mm -hmm. of cutting us off and and putting us into this place of isolation and she really taught me in this episode that those things they're not bad or they don't have to be bad and being in that place isn't bad but it is inescapable it happens to all of us sooner or later seasonally and it's something to be accepted and embraced and that yeah it really they really helped me a lot too.
0: Absolutely. I think this is one of my favorite episodes of the podcast that we have ever recorded. Me too. And uh, I hope you enjoy it as well. Wintering with Catherine May. Hello and welcome to Fresh Tape from What Fresh Hell Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And today we're talking to
1: Catherine May, who is the author of the new book, Wintering. Here's a little bit about Catherine. She's a writer of both fiction and nonfiction. Her journalism and essays have appeared in a range of publications, including the London Times, Good Housekeeping and Cosmopolitan. She's a mom of an eight year old boy. She lives by the sea in Whitstable England am I saying that right Catherine is it Whitstable you're saying exactly right yeah (laughs) <laughs> All right. And Catherine is also an avid lover of the outdoors, even when it's cold outside, which Margaret is fully behind. <laughs> I'm trying to be. Catherine's new book is Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. Welcome,
0: Catherine. Thank you. Hello. Nice to meet you. I want to live by the sea where oh, you live. I've never yeah. been there, but I know I want to live exactly <laughs> where you live.
2: I can't lie. It is very lovely. And it's been very soothing this year to have a sea to go to. You know, when everyone else has been missing There's summer holidays and things like that I'm very lucky Yes It
0: sounds like a big budget movie Starring like Julia Roberts Living by the sea I don't know I want to do that Right, right Having your sweater gathered around you Against the cold
1: Yes, absolutely
2: Oh, yeah, that's absolutely me. And actually, what's very funny is that this week there is a TV drama being filmed in Whitstable about Whitstable. And so they've kind of come and hypered up Whitstable. It's like all of the clapboard buildings along the seafront have now got these extra shutters over the doors and kind of cutesy signs. And <laughs> they've replaced all our like plastic lobster creels with like woven <laughs> ones, you know. <laughs> Whatever that movie is, I will watch
0: it twice. We will be on the <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Let us know. I am the exact audience for whatever that is. I would prefer if it doesn't involve, you know, tragedy. I want it happy. I want a lot of kissing. I want Mm. by the sea romance.
2: I think it's a detective drama, actually. So, yeah, could be quite good. Oh, I love that
0: even better. I'll take it. I would prefer romance, but I'll take it. So this is a
1: parenting podcast, Catherine, and we usually talk about parenting (laughs) books. And this book sort of is a parenting book, but it's really just a book for everyone. Margaret and I love this book. We've been talking about it all week and really looking forward to this interview because this book captures the moment that we are all in in this pandemic so perfectly. And that was completely unexpected on your part is that
2: right yeah i didn't do anything to cause the pandemic i just want to make that really clear
0: (laughs) (laughs) are we clear has that detective out in woodstable investigated that fully
2: yeah no i you can't pin it on me honestly i am it was written long before the any hint of the pandemic had come along but it has it's landed at a time that really speaks to the moment we're in i think and that was i wish i could say i would predicted that but i really had not
0: Can you give us I find it a difficult book, I keep talking to people about this book, and it's a slightly difficult book to summarize. But can you give us Mm -hmm. just to start us off so people kind of know what we're talking about a brief kind of summary overview of the
2: book? Sure. So the book's called Wintering, and it's about our physical and metaphorical winters. So the times in our life when we feel like the world has pushed us out and we're kind of isolated, depressed, locked out in the cold. But it's also drawing on our actual winters, the season of winter, to think about how we can conceptualize that time, I suppose, and how we can get insights from how like other people survive the winter, the physical winters, in order to learn how to ride out those periods in our own life when we're struggling.
1: And why do you think that wintering is something we do? I think you make the point very eloquently that we all have periods of wintering in our lives when we're kind of cut off from the rest of the world for good reasons, a brand new baby or terrible reasons, a death in the family, but they're sort of secret and shameful that we perceive wintering as something we have to do alone. Why do you think that is?
2: Yeah, I think we don't really talk about it. It seems to me that we all endure our own winters as if they're this special thing that's happened to us and we've uniquely failed and we feel really embarrassed and ashamed about it. And we don't really have a language for talking about them and for really seeing the similarities between those different moments. Because actually, I mean, the two examples that you bring up are perfect. It's really hard to talk about how having a new baby and having a death of a loved one could put you in a similar state of mind but we actually know that they do don't they I certainly felt that when I was trying to deal with a tiny baby at home on my own
1: yes it's like time out of time and nobody else is awake with you at two o'clock in the morning
2: yeah and you can feel everything drifting away from you I think
1: yeah it's that isolation that's it and Mm -hmm. that the sense is the world is moving on without Mm -hmm. you which can be a welcome or terrifying feeling that other everybody else is doing something that you can't participate
2: in right now definitely
0: One thing that really spoke to me about this book, we have a Facebook group and people share a lot of things. And someone was asking this morning about sort of advice on how to talk to somebody who had had a pregnancy loss. And she said, I know all the things not to say. So don't tell me those things. Hmm. I want to know what was helpful to hear. And one of the things that really spoke to me about this book was this metaphor of winter Mm. seems so useful for a time of mourning. There's a larger picture of times of isolation, but it really spoke to me as it's a season and it's a time that you are in a very specific Mm. state. And that state is you're kind of wintering alone and yet we've all done it. The metaphor was very, very meaningful to me and I think would be meaningful in terms of sharing that experience with people of like, this is winter. This is what it is. And there's an acceptance in that winter metaphor. But there's also a sense that it's a season, Mm. that it will, that there is, that spring is out there somewhere, no matter how far off.
2: Yeah, and that seasonal idea is helpful for two ways. I mean, like on one hand, it's going to end. And there is a kind of narrative arc to it. It does finish. In terms of grief, I mean, we know that you carry on grieving forever, but that real white heat of grief passes and real life comes back in again, although you emerge changed and, you know, like never forgetting but also you can't rush a season it will take its own good time mm. and i think that another kind of peculiarity of our modern life is that we think we can hurry everything up if we get it right like there's a technique yep. that maybe we haven't found yet but maybe there's a book or a podcast that will give us that technique <laughs> and then we probably can, our podcast yeah it would be if it was going to be there it would be your <laughs> if <one. laughs> it existed it would be us but i get your point yeah. that maybe it doesn't, it doesn't And I mean, grief is maybe uh, such a universal experience that we can all recognize this, that you can't hurry grief. There's nothing you can do to mitigate it. It's going to keep coming at you for a long, long time with loads of different angles on that feeling that awful feeling of missing someone and someone being absent from your life and actually the only way to deal with it is to ride it to walk alongside it to be part of it and not to try and defer it somehow i
0: think and i think going back to the person's question is that i have found through walking with other people in their loss and experiencing my own losses, that that acknowledgement of winter is the key, I think, to connecting with people in grief. Fellow feeling. Mm. Yes. Rather than saying, you know, it'll all be okay. Things happen for a reason. God must have wanted another angel. These things that we hear that people are like, please don't say these things. Mm. That the problem with those things is that it's not It's that to the people who helped me the most in times of my own wintering were people who looked at me and said, you're in winter and that's hard. And that, yeah. It moves me just to say that out loud. You know, there's something very powerful in acknowledging, and that's what I think is so powerful about the book overall, just acknowledging that winter is such a huge part of it that I think a lot of us try to skip. Yeah. Because we want to go right to like, you'll be okay. It'll be fine. And yes, not every situation will be fine. And as you said, some griefs are with us and have changed us for the rest of our life. And people who have an ability to
2: acknowledge that to you I found very useful to me I think it's really important and I think we are only just beginning to get back to the point in our society when we can look at grief again and see it for what it is which is an awful painful loss you know and there's no bright side to that like We can't, you know, draw the sunny side out of grief or, you know, draw lessons from it too soon. It's part of our humanity. It's fundamental to us. And in a lot of ways, it's very beautiful. It's very pure, but whenever I, you know, hear somebody, yeah, particularly with the loss of children, I mean, sort of saying, oh, well, I suppose that means that, you know, X, Y, or Z. No, there's not a bright side to this. The really empathetic and sympathetic response is to say, wow, this is horrible for you. Let me be with you while you're feeling horrible.
1: Catherine, can we talk about the events that sort of inspired you to write this book because they are not grief, or at least they're grief of a sort. Can you talk a little bit more about your own wintering?
2: Yeah. So this time around, because I, you know, one of the points I make in the book is that we winter in cycles and it comes at us again and again. But this particular time, I was just about to celebrate my 40th birthday when my husband fell very suddenly ill with a really nasty appendicitis that left him in hospital for quite a while while we were, you know, really worried about him. And As he was recovering, I realised that I'd been unwell for quite some time. I'd had a lot of abdominal pain and it suddenly took over. And at the same time as that, I was in the process of leaving my job because I already knew that I was very stressed and I had to get out. But that time for me collided when I became so ill so quickly that I had to be signed off work for several months. And those months I was... Serving out my notice that I'd given on my job. And that was incredibly hard for me because I felt really isolated from my colleagues. I felt like I'd let them down when I should have been gradually handing over my role. I felt paranoid. I felt humiliated. I assumed that everybody was talking behind my back. And I was also really worried. My doctor told me to brace myself for a cancer diagnosis. And it turned out not to be, but actually, I had pretty much destroyed a lot of my bowel by living for many many years with severe stress and so once I would got on top of that as much as you ever can um, shortly after we had to take my son out of school because he had just stopped coping altogether and we realized that our family life had got to the point where we were just firefighting every night and every morning to get him to and from school And I had to just push the stop button and say, right, this all ends. We can't keep throwing ourselves at the world like this. We've got to take some time out. And so that's what we did.
0: There's so much in that that we want to discuss. We'll be right back after this break. Margaret, I've
1: got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses. First two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. Exactly. Pampers Swaddlers keep baby skin dry, happy, and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better than the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak proof
0: skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. OK, we're back. And Catherine, one of the things that really struck me in those stories and again, it's not a parenting book necessarily, but there are so many parallels for parents. And this feeling of letting other people down when we're struggling is something that comes up again mm-hmm. and again <laughs> and again for us as hosts of this podcast and our listeners express it. And it's something that I think, again, I haven't really heard discussed in this way of the Part of the problem of winter coming is that it puts all this stress on us that like, no, 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 our job is to be out there doing all of the things. And if we're snowed in, it's not just that we need to deal with our own problems. It's that we're not taking care of everyone else. You would speak about it specifically at work. And um, but I thought that was a really interesting thing that I've heard come up for our listeners a lot.
2: Yeah, it's I think it's something that comes up with women a lot and mothers a lot. You know, we feel like we should be taking care of everybody. We feel like we should be on top of things and quite often, I mean when you talk to women who have really crashed, you listen to them and they will tell you that they were not only taking care of their family and you know, their nearest and dearest, but they were often also like getting involved in other people's lives as well you know they weren't kind of dropping around with meals for the person that was struggling down the road who they barely knew or they were looking after other people's kids after school or they were volunteering to take over you know the local girl guide troop because nobody else would do it and so they felt like they had to step forward and i think that you know women often feel this huge sense of responsibility for everything and end up really really crashing actually
0: And how did that play out for you in terms of this series of events where your husband became ill, you became ill, your son had issues at school? How do you extract yourself (laughs) from that in a healthy way?
2: Oh, well, I'm not sure there is a great way to do it. I mean, I had to just keep looking after everybody, but I also had to find time for myself and I had to acknowledge that I was suffering too and that actually I was, you know, really affecting my own physical health and certainly my mental health. And that meant using the time that this wintering opened up for me, just to do some very simple things that were about making space for me to reflect really and to tick through all the stuff that was happening until I could process it. So I did things like I baked a load, you know, I baked hilariously bad bagels that kept unraveling themselves. (laughs) I love that Um, (laughs) I used to be a really good baker, but I've lost my touch. I took loads of walks. I learnt to swim in the cold sea in winter. I just took the small bits of space that I could. You know, I never get big swathes of time anymore. I used to love going away on retreat before I had my son. I used to book myself a little hut in the woods and spend a few days there on my own. And that's just not possible for me anymore. But I can actively find time to Rest and to just be myself for a while and to find solitude. Solitude's really important to me, I think. I don't know if everyone shares that. I think other people get renewed by spending time with other people, but I need that time on my own. And if I don't acknowledge that need, then I'm not doing anyone any favors because, frankly, I'm grumpy and horrible to be with, but I'm also just tired and out of ideas.
1: You said something in the book about a tree, and I went for a walk this weekend and looked at a tree, was blown away that I had never realized this, that (laughs) you look at a tree and it seems dead. It appears dead. And Margaret will tell you, I am the dreader of winter on this podcast. I'm like, just going to hold on and wait for spring and it can't come soon enough. But that a tree is, in fact, not dead, it's the buds of its next leaves are... Present, They're there. The tree just knows that this is not a good time to expend that energy. <laughs> so it's going yeah. to hold the leaf buds until there's enough sunshine for them to succeed. And I had never mm. looked at a tree that way. And I had never looked at winter that way. That when the world feels overwhelming, it's time to stop forcing the new leaf buds. It's time to stop and hold and wait for better conditions so to speak. I'd never thought of it that way.
2: Absolutely. I mean, that was a huge learning for me, was knowing that these little buds are on the trees right now and they look really bare. I'd never noticed that before. Isn't it funny that you can live a whole adult life and not know something as simple as that? But actually, when you begin to look at the biology of this, all of nature is not pointed towards summer. It's pointed towards winter. It's pointed towards that point of survival at the darkest point of the year. So the trees, they dispose of their leaves when they're not needed anymore so that they can draw in their energies and make sure they're ready for the next year when they come back bigger and better, actually. And I mean, I spent some time with hibernating dormice, which was the cutest 10 minutes of my life (laughs) holding a, a sleeping dormouse. But, you know, they are awake for... A tiny fragment of the year compared to how long they sleep. And they spend the whole time they're awake getting fat, ready to survive that long sleep again. And they're squishy. By the time, you know, these little kind of dumpling dormice that you can hardly see their little hands because it's absorbed in all of their squishy brown fat that they've laid on. And it made me really realise something, which is that we can't only live for the good times and we can't only make those count. You know, they are not all of human life and I think we often think that anything that isn't completely joyful and completely perfect is something we've got wrong but actually the winter is normal for us it's part of being human and If we only count the other times, then we are just pretending we're like wishing away such a lot of our life. There are certain pleasures to winter, I think, and to personal winters as well as physical ones. I mean, I love the cold. I guess I should declare that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm a winter lover as well, but Amy's a harder sell. But I think that idea of life points to winter is, again, it's so useful for myself personally and parents writ large, which is I think that this misperception that it is our job to be the joy cruise director for everyone in our lives and to make sure that every day is a, you know, party on the Lido deck and you're doing the limbo and if you're not, Mm. then I have somehow personally failed my duty (laughs) as the (laughs) happiness cruise director for the 400 people I know and like you're going to get your card and it's Mm. so It's a pandemic, but I'm still going to make sure we have the elf on the shelf. And, you know, whatever the and some people take joy in those things. And there are moments of that. My house is festooned like madwoman with Christmas stuff because I wanted to cheer myself up. But that is what Christmas is, right? I mean, every year we put up the lights, we put up the decorations to sort of keep the darkness at bay. But I think that reorienting this idea for ourselves and our children, that we had a very terrible tragedy that happened in our town that affected my kids. And uh, counselors came to speak to us. And one of the counselors said to me, and I've discussed it before, because it made such an impression on me. She's like, you would never in a million years wish for something like this for your children. But at the same time, the lesson they will take from this something so terrible happening when they were very young, it will expand their understanding and make room for more of life for them. That idea really moved me. And I think the same thing in this book, which is that holding grief and badness and tragedy at bay, you're missing out. We always say, like, don't do it because someone wrote it in a book. Do it because it actually helps you. Mm. And I think allowing ourselves and allowing our children To sit in that winter and that grief and say, this is a time where you are in pain, but it's making you stronger in the same way that when you're exercising, you're in pain, but it's making you stronger. Like (laughs) it's an exercise in a way that is giving you something you would never have wished for it, but don't miss the gift of it. And that's something I think about a lot in in reality action to my kids because I think I have an instinct to be the cruise director yeah and I'm trying to leave more room for like yes this does feel bad because you made a really bad choice and now you're sitting in some pretty gross consequences from that bad choice and it does feel bad and Mm. allowing more room for
2: winter for myself and my kids is something that I need to work on I think that's so wise. And I know that I think about exactly the same issues so often, too. And actually, like we talk a lot about making our kids resilient, don't we? We know that we ought to want our kids to be resilient. Yes.
0: Grit is what everyone's obsessed with. We've got to have gritty kids.
2: Yeah. But for that, for our kids to really become resilient, they need to be able to deal with darkness and if we only ever show them happiness, if you know, as you say, the kind of cruise director, like if they're only ever being jollied along and encouraged towards joy and happiness, and like essentially looking happy so that we feel better about our parenting quite often yeah that's great, exactly like they cannot. Develop resilience that way. It's just not possible because the first time they leave our circle of influence and something bad happens to them, they're going to fall to pieces. And I, like, I talked to my son a lot about this when I took him out of school. He was only six, so he was very small. But I talked to him a lot about how he's suffering right now, and we're going to work through this together, and we're going to be sad together but that actually he's learning such a lot. And one of the things I kept hammering home to him was that he's learning a lot so that he could show compassion to other people in the future, too, Mm. and that he could really help others. And I think that's a beautiful thing to be able to offer the world, actually. Can we talk a little
1: bit more about that? I'm curious how you and how any parent sort of protects their little ones right now. I mean, a lot of us are going through a lot of grief or worry or, you know, all kinds of things. And... It doesn't really help that we're having this universal experience because we're all hibernating in our little in our homes and doing it. And I like the idea of letting my kids in to this is a difficult period. We're going through it together. And I try to do that in. Some ways, and my kids are older, my kids are teenagers. Mm. But how do you know sort of how much to let your kids into the process and how much to go with what I think sometimes is our natural instinct, which is to be like, winter isn't happening, not in
2: here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that is a really, I found that balance very hard to come by because actually, my first instinct was to say, right, we're going to watch the children's news together every day and like, we're going to make sure we're being really mindful about what's happening here, but in a kind of measured way. But I quickly realised that that was not helping him at all. He needed to be able to shut off from all the bad news that was happening because there was a level of insight that he kind of couldn't get. And quite early on, he an ambulance came past our house and he said, is that a COVID wagon? And I was like, what? Where did you even get that? Like, what is that? Is that something people have been saying at school? But I think in his head, you know, this he couldn't quantify what it would mean to have a pandemic. And I think he was thinking that there would be you know like people being shipped away all the time and I that made me really think that you know we have to protect kids from that 360 degrees news that we all suffer from too And so I've been kind of drip feeding him information, but we still mention it every day. But I've reduced his exposure as much as I possibly can because he doesn't need to deal with all the the fears that we're dealing with.
0: And I think that's right, because it's developmentally appropriate age wise. And we talk a lot about that. What is developmentally? What can kids handle, basically? Mm -hmm. And in that our job as parents is. To kind of be our kids guide and companion through life we are protecting them from many things you know we're protecting them from eating yeah. strange you know berries off the bush so they don't get poisoned hopefully <laughs> yes and we're protecting them i don't think we have to suddenly be like welcome to winter gritty kids here's yeah. the whole lot of it <laughs> yeah. like it's, it's okay to say we're going to let in as things you know we just had a family member who passed away and it's a we decided at what point to mention they were sick we decided at what point to kind of give them the outcome possibilities you know we very much guided the experience because we didn't want to suddenly drop cold water on their head that they weren't ready for but yeah so it's like you can control i think you said well the drip of information right the drip feeding like yeah. and that's what they're up for and so it's not that we're holding things away from them but we're drip feeding them
2: i do think we're like in brave new world though for our generation of parents, because actually, I think we're more conscious of the psychology of childhood than any generation has ever been before. I think we have learned lessons from maybe our parents' generation who often didn't tell us anything. You know, I know that when my grandmother died, like my family's instinct was like, it was none of my business almost. And that yeah, (laughs)
0: let's not discuss
2: it yeah absolutely and that they thought they could protect me by not telling me any of the details and so the shock was enormous because I had like literally no notion that, that she could die at that point point. and on the other hand like we also value childhood as a concept like we want our kids not to have to be forced to grow up too quickly and I think we're all treading such a tricky balance and then this lands like just as we're all asking those questions anyway <laughs> this damn pandemic lands and we're supposed to figure it out I don't think anyone knows. And I also don't think that we are getting the balance right for the amount of news we're taking in. So how on earth are we supposed to manage it for our kids?
0: All right, we're going to talk more about that after we come back from this break. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. We agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you we used Hero
1: Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to Hero.co and use the code MOTHERHOOD at checkout. I like
0: this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot and code MOTHERHOOD for 10% off your order of Hero Bread.
3: If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy the Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of the Shameless Mom Academy. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy.
1: So, Catherine, let's talk a little bit more about what you learned in your research for this book, about what nature can teach us about slowing down.
2: Mm, Oh, goodness. I learned so many wonderful things. I wanted to see what the animal kingdom did. So I thought a lot about hibernation and wondered about whether we as humans hibernate. And it came to me that actually our sleep pattern naturally changes in the winter. So there's some really interesting research like both historically and there's some kind of contemporary science that's been done by putting people through what a pre-industrial revolution winter would look like with no artificial light and no clocks. And I discovered that actually instead of hibernating, human beings have a really interesting pattern of sleep during the winter, which is that they wake up in the middle of the night. And that we tend to now read that as insomnia and see it as a really terrible thing. And again, we think we've failed because we think it's a medical condition and like our sleep's gone wrong. But actually, if you look back into history, there's evidence that people massively valued waking up in the middle of the night in winter. So they saw it as a time when they had like special quiet family time between maybe them and their partner or them and their kids and it was also this very meditative time when they wouldn't be able to do much because there wasn't much light available but they would perhaps be meditating, praying, having conversations with each other, having sex, all of the kind of lovely, quiet, intimate things that you might do with your time and I... You know, began to think about whether this is what our hibernating looks like a little bit. We're going to bed early, we're getting up late, but we're also finding this pocket of time in the middle of the night that's actually very special and very particular to winter. So that was maybe one like natural thing that I looked at. I also thought about how nature winters like how it like brings about efficiencies for winter how it strips itself down to the barest bones and then flourishes again in the spring and there's a rhythm to that that maybe we've forgotten that we too can draw ourselves in sometimes and then bounce back into the world when we're good and ready and when the time's right rather than keep forcing ourselves through loads of social interaction when actually that's too much for us in the darkest seasons
0: and you also talk about cultural winter so how certain cultures handle Mm. winter and prepare for winter again this idea of preparation and what are the parallels for people thinking about this new conception of winter
2: Yeah, so I set out to find out what it was like if you were intimate with deep winter. So people that got snowed in every year. I mean, that's something that I've never had to deal with. Like, we don't get very much snow in Whitstable. So I looked at Scandinavian cultures and talked to people who, you know, would expect from, say, November to February to have their lives seriously curtailed every year because the temperature is way below zero and there's deep snow everywhere. They can't get around. And, you know, again, I learned that they prepare all through summer, just like the Animal Kingdom does. They preserve food, so they've got delicious stuff to eat. They make sure that their home's repaired. They make sure that everything's ready for the winter. And they make special time during that winter period when they're locked in so they don't try and pretend it's not happening and they don't think that it's a great thing you know we talk about how much Scandinavians love the snow and how they are you know really great with their hookah culture well the truth behind that is that they do it because they absolutely have to because they know there's so much darkness if they don't find a way to cope with it you know they know their alcoholism rates are high they know their suicide rates high they know That every year people go out in the cold and die from exposure if they get it wrong. So they create this cozy environment as a way to keep themselves sane and safe throughout winter. And that led me to an exploration of the sauna in Finnish culture, which I found fascinating. (laughs) It's another funny story, the sauna. Oh, yeah. Well, my own exploration (laughs) didn't go so well. I mean, you know, the person I spoke to about it made it sound great. And she, you know, she sort of said that in Finland you would not be without access to a sauna like every family's got one and if you haven't got one yourself you're sharing it between a few families and everything happens there all of life happens in the sauna and you get together with your family <laughs> and you talk and then you have a beer afterwards and it's really soothing so I thought I might try and go and sauna and I fainted on the floor. <laughs> so that wasn't the right solution for you I'm not good at heat I am genuinely a chilly mortal <laughs> <But> yeah, I <laughs> I had a very undignified moment of the whole sports center arriving on mass to give me first aid while I was in my knickers on the floor. It was awful.
0: <laughs> and so sauna wasn't it for you, but draw us out of the metaphor of winter here, how <laughs> other people do it, how they prepare. Mm. What is the practical application for people who are saying, OK, winter, the season, but also in personal winters, mm. how? do we prepare? What is the metaphor of the sauna? What might that be for people in their
2: own personal winters? Well, I think there's a few metaphors that it leads to. I mean, I think it's about contact with the cold. And what I mean by that is contact with your actual feelings, like being there, actually mindfully addressing what's going on in your head rather than constantly escaping it. I mean, that's what seems to happen in the sauna in those cultures is that people talk through their problems. It's like therapy. And, you know, therapy is a great idea, incidentally, during winter. But it's also about really feeling the bite. And, you know, so I didn't like the sauna. So I started cold water swimming. And that was the thing that really did it for me, that really helped me to cope because actually when I took my body into that incredibly cold environment my mind was absolutely in the moment I stopped escaping and imagining this kind of past and future that you know could only go wrong like I stopped that paranoia and I took myself right into the basic moment of survival and for me, I found that incredibly compelling. And I think that's really instructive. Not everybody wants to get into the freezing cold sea like I do. I get that. (laughs)
0: My sister does. She's a lunatic, though. So I don't know.
2: Yeah, well, you know, I think a little bit of madness is a good thing to have sometimes. I've been swimming today. But what it taught me is that, you need a way to shift your mind into your living at the moment. Like, stop worrying about the future. It's so hard to do. But if you can be exactly where you are at the time, you've got half a chance of processing what's going on. But our tendency is to keep worrying about what we did in the past and to keep trying to reimagine the future and to see if we can make it work for us. And We have got no control over either of those things. What we have got control is what we do in the here and now. And we need to get on with the raw experience of living as we are. That's all we can do. That's all we can control.
1: I realized reading this book that that's what I have been doing with winter, not even dreading the future. I've been like please come future right all i have to do is just try to sleep until april 1st and then this is going to be okay but just to be in the isness of the moment of Mm. this is where i am and this isn't something to be withstood this isn't something to be gotten through as quickly as possible this is a useful cyclical part of my human experience i haven't really thought of it that way before
2: Yeah, it's really hard to do. But I think actually, you know, when you've got kids, you almost don't have a choice, do you? Because you have to be managing their response and how they're dealing with it. And you have to be finding a way through. Like, that's our job as parents. And so that does take us into the moment. But if we teach our kids to only be deferring it, like to, you know, my son would sit on Minecraft all day, every day if he could. Yes, And I have to drag him away from that sometimes because he needs to know where he is in time and space. Like this isn't the best time of our life, but it is a time. And it is really important for him to grow and learn through this rather than to numb himself. Because numbing yourself in the end doesn't work, unfortunately.
1: You say that there's wisdom to be gotten from wintering and that people who have wintered have great wisdom what do you think the wisdom is that you've gained (laughs) from your own winters (laughs)
2: <laughs> oh, I wish I knew. <laughs> I wish I could just hand you down something. That was really. <laughs> Can you save me the trouble? Can I skip to April? <laughs> Sorry, it's not that simple. <laughs> but I mean, I think the wisdom that I've learned is to regulate myself through those times. Actually, that doesn't sound like a very big thing, but I've got the measure of the shape of those times when everything goes wrong now. And I trust them much more than I used to. Like, I don't think my life's ending. I don't think that I've failed now once and for all and it's never come back again. I instead think I'm in a winter. And that sounds really small, but it's massive. Like having that situational awareness that you're going through something at that moment rather than the whole world's coming in is such a different experience. And that's, yeah, I think that's my wisdom that I've gained.
0: What about people who feel like life is a winter? You know, that they don't find it cyclical. They don't find it seasonal. Yeah, and
2: I actually think in terms of say chronic illness. Good point. Mm-hmm.
0: That's exactly. I was thinking of someone specific, and that's
2: exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I think we often, you know, when we talk about seeing the positive side, they're exactly the people we leave out of this conversation because we're looking for that win at the end of winter, you know, and like it's all it's all going to be the good part. It's got to be crocuses, or it wasn't worth it. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of what we're processing in winter is unwanted change and negative change, you know, like not all change is positive. There's not a bright side to everything. But I do think that what we're looking for is the way forward, the way to live. And so, I mean, like to give an example from my own life, I was 40 or no, a little bit, before 40 when I um, learned that I was autistic after living a whole life thinking that I was just like a wonky human being who didn't cope with anything very well. And that was really difficult change to process because that was a moment when I had to accept that I wasn't going to find the right therapy or the right self-help book or the right physical therapy that was going to make me cope with life like the people around me did. But by processing that unwanted change. I do live a much better life. Like I live with more restrictions than I used to. But that's because I've stopped throwing myself at, you know, all the things that I can't do that completely exhausted me, like some demented blue bottle against a window pane and so you know that's the change that was being offered to me I don't get to say no no sorry I'm not because I am autistic (laughs) but it has let me make a load of adaptations that I'd never have thought to make before which at first felt like restrictions but now which feel actually really liberating and I have the same with my you know with all of my various gut problems like I can't eat the stuff I used to eat I can't mess about with my stress levels as much as I used to I have long periods when I feel unwell now when my movement's restricted because everything's so painful but I needed to find a way to cope with that because that's not going away like I can't wish it away and sometimes the end of wintering is just acceptance rather than a win and that unfortunately is not terribly fair but it is again, human. That's so lovely. We always say at the end of our
0: podcast when we're trying to solve a dilemma (laughs) that we solved it. That's a solve right there. I feel like this whole book is a solve, friends. you got to read this book. Amy and I have been texting all week different parts of it. I mean, we read a lot of books for this podcast, and we don't often get ourselves quite this excited. Oh, bless you. That's so lovely. Catherine, tell us where on the internet
1: we can find you. I know you have a podcast as well.
2: Yeah, I have a podcast called The Wintering Sessions, where I um, interview different writers about wintering times in their life. I'm just recording the second series, actually, so I've been doing some really great interviews. I'm so excited to share that, so you can find that wherever you get your podcast. I'm on Instagram. I'm Catherine May underscore, and I'm on Twitter I've got a really complicated Twitter handle I regret it every time I have to say (laughs) it out loud we'll link to it on the show page yeah please do because it just sounds silly when you say it out loud but when you look at it it looks okay (laughs) but but Google me I'm there
1: (laughs) Catherine May's new book is called Wintering The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times this is a beautiful book for you for anyone it's a terrific book thank you for talking to us Catherine thanks so much thank you so much for having me thank you
5: on the air around relatable struggles.